Hello, Len. How are you? Good. I don't think you need any introduction. Uh, so many people are aware of you, Duquesne, your famous father, and the good work you've done. I met you while well, at the conference in 2013 right. when you put That's on right. one of the best conferences. I've been to several. Like I was just mentioning that it was just so far heads and tails above anything that it was a real conference. And of course, being back by a, a university, college, school, what, how the Duquesne Institute is, it, it just seemed to help as opposed to a lot of other ones are kind of ad hoc, put together by volunteers and things like that. But um, so this Thank year... Thank you so much, Lynn. Yeah, 2023, you are putting on something again, and I want to give you time to let people know and encourage them, give them information so that they may show up this year. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Very good. So, uh, November 15 through 17 of this year, we will be holding a hybrid conference, which is to say it will be happening both here on the Duquesne University campus and online uh, by way of a Zoom webinar. We will be uh, addressing multiple aspects of the JFK assassination from uh, criminalistic and forensic scientific and uh, medical questions uh, to more historical and uh, political and uh, pedagogical questions as well on the second day. Um, we have uh, all kinds of speakers, some very familiar, uh, some less familiar, and um, uh, hoping for a, a really interesting mix of presentations and, and opinions and discussion here. Well, um, Tell me a little bit what what what's the uh, the motivation this year? I mean, this is sixty years, and yeah. uh, is there a specific theme that you have for it? I think the last one was uh, passing the torch. Yeah, so funny you you should ask that. As I was listening to you talk about the 2013 conference, it reminded me that when that was over, and I think a large reason for for labeling it passing the torch. The idea was that that was pretty much it for us, uh, that, that we would most likely not be delving back into this subject matter. I certainly did not have it on, on my radar at all. To be quite honest with you, several months ago, let's say maybe up, up to a year ago at the most, I started receiving a flurry of emails, calls, inquiries here on campus 
and in the community. When are we, are we doing, or in some cases, when are we doing our 60th anniversary conference? And uh, got me thinking about it more and more and scratching my head. And uh, finally went to my boss, the, the director of the, the institute, and um, she said, you know, maybe we should do this. So I started looking back into the case, um, some of the research that has been ongoing. Um, also, questions about the release, uh, partial release of files, and um, what still may may yet to be may may have to be learned about this case. Um, what we what we don't know, uh, what we need to know, and. Um, I uh, wasn't surprised, but I was I was pleased to, to learn that it really is a, quite a hotbed of research activity by truly reputable people in their fields, physicians, attorneys, journalists, forensic scientists, um, uh, as well as amateur uh, scholars of the assassination. And uh, it, it revived my own interest in the case to the point where um, uh, I'm now really, really thrilled that we're doing this and, and look forward to it. You know, it's like average citizens who look into it feel that there's been a great miscarriage of justice. And the further they look, the more rotten it seems. You know, 50 mm -hmm. years, 60 years. They're just clinging to this story that this mm -hmm. lone Marxist disgruntled guy shot the president mm -hmm. and that's that and go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. And the further you look into it, it really gives you a, a distrust of government, which is earned, which is earned. So you have speakers who have done, you know, authors, filmmakers that have, have spent their time to say, this is what we've discovered. So someone's mm -hmm. in you know, like your father, forensic pathologist, other people on x-rays, other people on acoustics, uh, you know. So all these people have got together yes. and said there's something wrong, and yet the government still will not correct this or even really show interest in it. So mm -hmm. it, it's taken institutes such as yours that you represent and, like we said, concerned citizens that are networking yeah. to say this is what we found. It reminds yeah. me, you know, Mark Lane was so good last time in 2013 that, you know, mm -hmm. Tannenbaum, right? You know, these guys are saying that if you are interested, you don't have to buy my book. So, you know, it wasn't really that kind of conference where people are hawking stuff, but it's more like, um, here's what we know. And mm -hmm. uh, in order to, to stop it from happening again. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Well, okay, so tell me the dates and uh, locations and, and how people can find more in information. Absolutely, Len. So the, the dates again, we will begin with an evening reception and program on Wednesday, November 15th. Uh, and incidentally, for those who may be in town early or who may live in, in the Pittsburgh area, that afternoon before our opening reception, Duquesne University will be uh, unveiling the Cyril H. Wecht Forensic Science Collection at the Maine University Library. Uh, this is uh, uh, unrelated, directly, uh, not directly related to the conference, except through through my dad, Dr. Wecht. Uh, but we timed it so that folks can avail themselves of that open house and uh, press conference. Uh, the collection represents books, journals, uh, case files, uh, mementos from throughout his career that uh, he donated to the university just, just this year. So um, uh, uh, I just mentioned that by way of um, 
uh, again, anyone who may be on campus or, or around the Pittsburgh area earlier that day. Thursday, November 16th, and Friday, November, 6th, Friday, November 17th, will be two full days of presentations and discussions. Um, Thursday, the 16th, will be largely focused on criminalistic, forensic scientific, and uh, forensic medical matters. Uh, Friday, November 17th, will be largely focused on uh, historical, uh, political, and um, uh, pedagogical matters in, in uh, the study of this case. Um, the place to go to learn more and to register is duq.edu slash JFK60. So I'll repeat that. Uh, D-U-Q, that's for Duquesne, duq.edu forward slash JFK60. Uh, registration's open and there's component registration available. So in other words, if someone uh, can only attend one day, that's fine. Two days, that's fine. Uh, the, the opening reception, that's fine. Um, and as I previously mentioned, folks can choose between the on-site and the virtual attendance. Now, what, like, um, I'm just trying to pose the question here, but I'm just thinking about, like, what is the benefit of going to the conference rather than just watching the videos later? Uh, what do you feel is the appeal? The videos will only be available on a limited basis to registrants. Uh, we're, we're, we have no plans to produce uh, a record of, of the symposium. So just to be clear, uh, anyone who wants to see these proceedings will need to register. Now, as for why one may want to be here rather than watch it on Zoom, uh, I would say uh, for a few reasons. Uh, one, if you're like me, you like to be around people and uh, the, the opportunities to, uh, uh, to share notes, to uh, schmooze, to network. We will have vendors here. We'll have booksellers here. As I mentioned previously, there will be that special library event. Oh, I should also mention, I, I neglected one of our partners on this, Citizens Against Political Assassinations, also known as CAPA, will be holding a special dinner, uh, an award dinner, on the evening of Thursday, November 16th, following program adjournment for that day. There will be a, a Lifetime Achievement Award being given to Dr. Wecht. Uh, there will also be some... Uh, 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 some programming of their own, completely separate from this conference. And uh, anyone who wants to learn more about that should contact CAPA directly. Those proceedings will not be filmed at all. So uh, that would be an additional reason to be here on campus. So, you know, that's about all I can say. Again, if, if one registers, he or she will have access to the recordings for a limited time. I think, don't quote me on this, but perhaps up to 30 days. Okay, right. Previous things that have been put on were available for quite a while. And the thing I enjoyed about the other ones that you could purchase them individually. If you wanted to see uh, Robert Tannenbaum, I think it was like three ninety nine, and you just got that one hour. Or... Yeah, well, those, just, so just so you know, and so your listeners know, the, the content from the 2003 and 2013 conferences has been assigned to an outside company where those both DVDs and digital downloads are, are still being sold. 
And I can certainly give you that website at this time if you'd like. Sure. Or you e- email them to me and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, Absolutely. Okay. Very good. Absolutely. So it's good that people in Pittsburgh there at your institute were inquiring about, you know, you got to do something. And certainly you're a focal point of that. What do you think people would be taking away from from going to a conference and listening to people speak about this crime that happened so long ago, but why we should keep it still uh, on the forefront? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question. I, I think for, for some people, this has receded into the, or is beginning to recede in the mists of history. And it, it, it seems like, I don't know, uh, the, studying the Lincoln assassination, say. Um, but I think for, for many others, uh, both people who lived during that time and folks like me who came along afterwards uh, and who, who have developed um, a skepticism or, or distrust about uh, governmental institutions, media institutions, and the like, there there is still a lot here to be studied and understood. And uh, as you know, uh, just, this, just this week, there's major news breaking in the form of revelations from former U.S. Secret Service agent Paul Landis uh, about his observations and, and actions that day. Um, uh, just so folks know, Mr. Landis will be here as part of our conference um, discussing the, his experiences firsthand. Uh, uh, he'll also be part of a dialogue with Dr. Wecht. So we'll have not just his experiences, but a forensic reaction to those experiences. That's something very new, um, which is already, uh, uh, you know, two months before the event, uh, attracting a lot of attention. And I think we'll probably continue to do so at that time. Um, We have coming here um, folks who are presenting not just on what happened, uh, what may have happened, um, why it happened, but also raising questions about uh, how and how and why we're studying it. Um, uh, we'll have Barbara Perry, a prominent political scientist from the University of Virginia, discussing JFK's legacy um, and and why his presidency warrants this, the ongoing study of of his murder. Um, we'll have folks presenting on how the assassination is being taught or not taught to young people today and and, and how that should change. Um, And we'll have folks talking about how the media is and isn't uh, taking on the problem, Um, how easy it is to um, uh, disparage or or belittle this pursuit as the realm of of quote-unquote conspiracy theorists um, rather than really roll up the arm sleeves and, 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 and take a look at what people like Mr. Landis uh, and others have to say. So, um, yeah, we think there's going to be a lot here. Uh, some of it will be old hat to some, uh, but I, I think we've got a lot of, of new or fresh looks at, at older material that it, it warrants one last hurrah. Now, what's your opinion of, of why it's so important to to study what really happened to John Kennedy. Well, my opinion is that any society, any any culture needs to understand its past, um, needs to understand how it got to where it is today. And I was just mentioning rampant distrust in government, in the media, 
in in various institutions, I think it, it's easy to chuck that up in many ways to just the last several years, if you will. But the fact of the matter is that distrust has been building since the 60s. And the, the fact that there are that there is a majority still of Americans who, who do not buy the Warren Report or the lone gunman theory or the single bullet theory is very troubling because it, it articulates a, a certain not not just distrust, but but truly a, a sense of, of, of despair about our government and about our society. If it's possible to murder a, a president, a leader of the free world, and for the true cause and manner of death to remain misunderstood this many years later, then it, it's, it's, it's equally possible today, not because forensic science and, and, and investigative journalism aren't here to help us better understand things than we could understand them 60 years ago. But I, I think because of the distrust I've been underlining and the very mutability or, or relativization of truth that seems to be re- reaching very troubling, almost epidemic proportions in our in our society, certainly over the last several years, it's harder and harder for people to know what to believe in, what's real, what's quote-unquote fake news. And I, I think it's important to understand the roots of that distrust and perhaps through the study and, and even mastery of this subject matter, regain some sense of, of trust and um, uh, belief in, in where we are as a society. What it, what it does for me is it reveals just that the problem was much worse than I imagined. That when you say, uh, t- talking about, I don't want to paraphrase, but just, you know, the, we've lost trust in government and how will we get mm-hmm. it back? And it, and it might be, this case reveals uh, it, it's so much more crooked than I thought. It's not like, you know, how did they cover this up? But it encompasses, yes, they decided to kill a president. And it's not like Joe Biden right now or somebody that you or I don't know, Jimmy Carter or, or you know, Nixon. It's just people that you may get along with or not. I, I hate to bring Trump into it. But I'm just saying that, you know, John Kennedy, he wanted to do good for America and then the world. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people got that. And then mm-hmm. the fact that these factions decided, no, that guy's got to go, you would normally think, when, you know, you're raised in schools, you know, to trust local government and the police and the fire department. You know, there's certain people you should trust. Mm-hmm. And then you think, the, this, this is really crooked. And not only did they kill someone who was very good for our civilization, they put in place this power of this Warren Commission. They will cover up anything, which leads to... I think that maybe when the Zapruder film started going around campuses, that was a big impetus of having people drop out. They go, I'm not going to your Vietnam War. I'm just, whatever society you're pushing, we're not part of it. And and people dropped out. And the the loss in faith, as you mentioned, has been earned. So now, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's just understand the problem first. How bad is it? Would they really lie about everything? I mean, right now it's just like the week of 9-11. And you go, would they lie about what happened that day? You know. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard it's hard to understand, for instance, why 
files are still being withheld 60 years after the fact, especially if the the official position that a, a, a lone gunman, a disgruntled communist, whatever you want to, however you want to describe Oswald, uh, did this alone. What are we? What are we hiding? What are we protecting? It, it is. It's very troubling, and it, it suggests that there is a lot more here that we need to be digging into. And I'm glad we are. Yeah, and, and that's. It's like a. It's been a university education for me because that is something that before this case I would have never really thought that things were that bad or I should be this distrusting of the media. And if people have the line, look, not everything is a conspiracy. Uh, okay, of course, but I just like to know <laughs> what's the truth? <laughs> Name some new show that I can actually trust anymore. And maybe the, the last guy kind of just half-heartedly was Walter Cronkite, you know, like people said, well, he was the most trusted man in America. If he came on the TV and mm-hmm. said something now... I mean, uh, well, anyway, we're getting off the topic. So I I found the whole interest of the JFK assassination uh, to be very educational. The more you learned, you you didn't get deeper into a rabbit hole. You this is how it works. This is how they can. This is how they they um, they embed journalists into this. And and you know the 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 whole uh, mighty Wurlitzer, the CIA that you you learn and learn. And on your fiftieth, it was fantastic the 60th you're planning more of the same so i just want to make sure people that anywhere in uh, eastern america or around the world uh don't forget that you're putting on a conference this year at duquesne and i'll make the proper links in the show notes thank you lynn yeah i can't think of anyone who had a bad word to to say about anything that happened at the last conference to my surprise (laughs) there was john mcadams and max (laughs) what's his name uh, Max Holland. Yeah, oh, I hate to say the name out loud, so I'll be conjuring evil spirits by saying his name. But anyway. Yeah, well, you know, we've had, we've had no share of of doubters, or to fl- turn that coin on its head, advocates for for the official for the Warren Commission uh, here over the years, and we welcome them. Um, uh, you know, you won't find that position, I don't believe, among any of the presenters. Um, that's simply a function of where the, the, the advanced thinking on this case is at this point. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of, in terms of um, uh, attendees, registrants, um, we encourage people of all stripes to come um, and to raise, raise good questions. Um, certainly a lot, a lot to be questioned. Um, not everything here will match up. Um, I don't think we're going to uh, come to any consensus on uh, number of shots or, or, or shooters uh, or exactly what transpired on November 22nd, 1963. But that's all right. It's the spirit of of, of debate and, and scholarly research that we're after. Yeah, yeah, and speaking of research, I recall vividly Tink Thompson had a presentation where he said, well, I'll show you what their studies are. And their conclusions are based on. And he picked apart these recreations of the headshot and that. And when he went through all the data, they were just, it was fraud. I don't know if you recall that, but it was just a fraud. And and yet, so that's one thing that people can offer that, well, if you don't want to trust the government, show me why not. And said, well, here's what they did. And here's what the, the conclusions are. And they don't mm-hmm. match up at all. And mm-hmm. not only is it not that you can't trust it, but it's fraud. And, yep. uh I'll leave it at that. Well, Mm-mm. look, I, I 
just wish you the best of luck in everything. Before we wrap up, is, is there anything you want to talk about just about at arm's length about the conference that I didn't get to? I mean, the, uh, the Paul no, I think, we, I, think we've, I think we've covered, yeah, I, uh, I, I encourage people if they're if they're interested in uh, thinking about the conference or, or know someone who may be interested, uh, please go onto our website that I mentioned and, and look at the program agenda and look at the speaker list. And um, um, I, I think uh, there's there's something for I won't say everyone, but but for a lot of people there, um, folks who are interested in forensic science, folks who are interested in American history, folks who are interested in, in education and pedagogy. Um, uh, investigative journalism. Um, uh, just encourage people to, to take a look and um, and and see if it may be something worth attending. I hate to admit this, but I'm not quite familiar with that term, pedagogy. What oh, is teaching. Uh, the 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 uh, pe- pedagogical just simply refers to the philosophy and process of of um, sharing knowledge with with students. Teaching. Okay. Not to be confused with demagogue, demagoguery, which is a whole other word. Okay, Mr. Wecht, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Good luck, and um, I'll make proper notes uh, and links to the conference and hope that it's a success. Thank you so much, Len. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, look forward to speaking again soon. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you. Good night, then. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, Mr. Jim DiEugenio from Los Angeles. Hello, Jim. Good evening, Len. Good evening. And I'd like to also mention it's a pleasure to speak to you again. You're just a wealth of information down in L.A. there uh, with Kennedys and King. You've got the ear to the grindstone or whatever you want to call it about uh, having information, working with Oliver Stone as well. And almost every second week, you come on to announce what is new in research and also to take listener questions. So that's a a real benefit, I think, to people new to the case and wondering, what book do I trust? Who do you know? There's so many fraudulent books out there so that you give these reviews and that. I just want to thank you again. Thank you very much, Lynn. And I guess the, uh, well, if you go over to Kennedy's and King, the newest article I have up there is one I wrote myself. Hoover versus King, the ARB documents. And I was going to actually talk about that tonight, but I think the Landis revelation uh, necessitates that we actually spend some time on this because it's dominating the news cycle, right? Okay, so for those who are not familiar, who is Paul Landis? Paul Landis is a retired Secret Service agent who was on the Kennedy detail in Dallas. He retired several months after Kennedy's assassination. Uh, It might have been as late as 1965 when he retired. But what is so gripping about Landis's upcoming book, it's not out yet, is that, number one, it was previewed in both Vanity Fair and and the New York Times. Let me say that again. It was previewed in both Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm not hallucinating, okay? And both of them played up what is probably the most sensational part of the book. That is, Landis says that as he was walking away from the car after helping Jackie Kennedy get out of the car, that he picked up some of her things that were left in the back seat. Like I think one of the things that he picked up was 
her purse. Okay. All right. Now, he also said that, and this is the shocking part of it, he said that he picked up a bullet. All right. And he put it on Kennedy's stretcher when he got into the hospital. Now, let me add something. People are trying to save this, the true meaning of this, if it's true. And I'm not saying it is. We're just reporting it by saying that this bullet is CE399. I'm sorry, fellas. That just shows how dumb you guys are concerning the Kennedy case. This cannot be CE399. First of all, I fail to see how CE399 could eject itself from Connolly's thigh into the back seat. I, I, mean, I just don't buy it. It could not eject itself from Connolly's thigh into the back seat. All right. Second of all, he said he put it on Kennedy's stretcher. For the Warren Commission, as we know, Spectre had to make like the bullet was found on Connolly's stretcher. Now, you know how stupid the Daily Beast is? They tried to say that it bounced off Kennedy's stretcher on the Connolly stretcher. <laughs> this is how desperate they are to keep this story, you know, somehow susceptible to the Warren Commission verdict. It's not. If Landis is telling the truth, then this makes five bullets. Now, why do I say that? If you watched a long version of Oliver Stone's documentary, JFK Destiny Betrayed, you'll see that Randy Robertson is one of our witnesses. He uncovered the story of James Young, who was an assistant to Admiral Berkeley. All right. Young sent a couple of his of the couple of uh, people in the autopsy room, uh, one of them I think was named Mills, down to the limousine to pick up any, what they thought would be bone chips left over from the shooting, you know, in, in the car. Well, they not only came up with a couple of those, they came up with another bullet, all right? And Randy did a very nice job of explicating this in our film. So if you go with the Warren Commission version, Number one, you have the two fragments that were split and in the front of the car. Those are from Kennedy's skull, supposedly. All right. You have CE399, which buried itself in Conley's thigh and somehow by reverse gravitation worked its way out and into the side of Conley's stretcher discovered by Tomlinson. You have the bullet that missed. And this was the what they call the James Tague strike. All right. This is something the Warren Commission and the, and the FBI tried to avoid because it was very deadly to the Warren Commission verdict. But too many people heard about it in Dallas. Inspector had to eventually recognize it. All right. You have the Randy Robertson, James Young, that particular projectile. And now you have this. If Landis is telling the truth. And I'll tell you what, that makes a heck of a lot more sense to me than the magic bullet theory, you know, which was always a big bunch of crap anyway. All right. All right. Now, the amazing thing about this story is that it's, it's spreading like wildfire throughout the media. There must be, if you go ahead to uh, DuckDuckGo or less preferably Google, you'll see like about 15 stories on this. It's, it's really, really awakened a big part, of, which I thought would never happen, of the MSM 
to the possibility that the Warren Commission was full of crap, you know, which it was. And David Talbot and Jeff Morley have both talked about it. I think Je- uh, wasn't he on CNN today? I think Jeff Morley was on CNN today, wasn't he? I don't get CNN anymore. Oh, you I don't? Dropped oh, it a couple of years ago. Okay, good for you. And they, of course, had somebody debating him. Okay, but I heard Jeff did very well, and that's that's good. And he um, he treated it also on Substack, which he has a column. The guy they assigned this to at the New York Times is a guy named Peter Baker, and Jeff included his story. Okay, so let me read a little bit. And remember, this is the New York Times. The Warren Commission decided that one of the bullets fired that day struck the president from behind, exited from the front of his throat, continued on to hit Conley, somehow managed to injure his back, chest, wrist, and thigh. It seemed incredible that a single bullet could do all that. So skeptics called it the magic bullet theory. Investigators came to that conclusion partly because the bullet was found on a stretcher believed to have held Mr. Conley at Parkland Memorial Hospital. So they assumed it had exited his body during efforts to save his life. But Mr. Landis, who was never entered by the Warren Commission, says that is not what happened. In fact, he said he was the one who found the bullet. And he found it not in the hospital, but in the presidential limousine lodged in the back of the seat behind where Kennedy was sitting. Now, Jeff takes it up from there. If true, Landis' story shows that the commission's theory about CE399 is wrong. Now, what most people are saying, and this makes sense. See, here's another problem. The mass of the evidence seems to indicate, and actually it's stronger than that, it does indicate, that Kennedy's back wound did not perforate his body. By that, I mean a perforating wound is one that comes in in one side and goes out the other. Well, I'm not going to list all the evidence that says the back wound did not perforate Kennedy's body, but just listen to Seibert and O'Neill, the two FBI agents. They are devastating on this point. Okay, They say that, that they tried, he said the pathologists and their assistants tried and tried and tried to find an exit for that back wound, and they couldn't find one. You know, they went ahead and they put what they call a malleable probe into Kennedy's back. And that's one way that you go ahead and try and find an exit wound. And Cybert and O'Neill, no, we, 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 they couldn't find one. They spent a lot of time trying to do this. Now, obviously, and to me, the major point to what they call the giveaway in the evidence is the fact that the back wound was not dissected, all right? In other words, it wasn't tracked through. You know, what you're supposed to do in that situation is you're supposed to go ahead and clear out all the blood and the tissue in the cavity of the wound, okay, and trace it all the way through, all right, you know, to its exit point. That didn't happen. And the reason that it didn't happen is that as we found out at the trial of Clay Shaw, when Pierre Fink took the stand for the defense, is that the military brass there told him not to dissect the back wound. All right. Now, when you read this, and I think you can read it online, uh, I summarize it in my book, Destiny Betrayed, second edition. 
when you read this, you will see how difficult it was for the uh, assistant DA, Alvin Oser, to get Fink to reply to that question. Why didn't you dissect the back wound? He, I think he asked him it something like eight times. Okay, and finally he had to turn to the judge who had to order Fink to answer the question. And he says, words to the effect, that I think it was an army general told him not to do it. Okay, now that should have been standard operating procedure in any kind of gunshot homicide. You dissect the wounds in the body because that's the only way that can you can find trajectory. All right, and in fact, when I interviewed Henry Lee, I did a pre-interview with him for the film. Okay, and I he was eating dinner out at Malibu. He was testifying in a case in Los Angeles. Okay, and he called me up. You know, and he said, Jim, why don't you come out and see me and drop off the questions? And so I did. I drove out to the Malibu and I asked him about this. All right. And he said, you can't do a trajectory analysis in the JFK case. And I was really surprised he said that. OK. And I said, how come? And he said, because neither wound was dissected. If you don't dissect a wound, then what you're doing is, is that's essentially guesswork. OK. You can't really speak with authority. On such, a, on such a matter unless the wound is dissected. You know, and this, this is, you know, and that's, I thought about it. I said, you know something, that's probably correct. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking to a guy who did 1,000 gunshot autopsies. Okay. So he's probably correct on this. Okay. And so this is a giveaway as to why this did not happen. We know that there were anywhere like from 35 to 42 people there that night. All right. Now, another thing that I think we should consider is that Landis, <laughs> this is from the New York Times, Mr. Landis has been reluctant to speculate on the larger implications. He always believed that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman. But now Landis says, at this point, I'm beginning to doubt myself, he said. Now I begin to wonder. And that is as far as he's willing to go. All right. And this, of course, is where the time stops also. They don't analyze what it really means, like I've just done with you. Okay. All right. Now, as Jeff notes here, and he understates it, the fact that the Times and Vanity Fair decided to run with this story is a really significant breakthrough, you know, in the G. I don't have to tell you that, right, Len? Okay. <laughs> the country's newspaper of record is now open to serious and respectful coverage of the long scorned view of the majority of Americans that the official theory of JFK's assassination is wrong. All right. Well, you know, it might be that Tucker Carlson was also talking about the JFK assassination. And now that when he's left and just has an internet show, these failing media, they realize people just don't believe them. So this might be just a last-ditch effort for them to say, well, here's something sensational. We never covered it before. Maybe we should. I mean, I, he may have had some role inadvertently. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I give him all the credit in the world if that's the case. All right, now David Talbot wrote on Facebook. He titled his story, The Confessions of a Secret Service Agent. Former agent Paul Landis, as he approaches 90, is apparently a low-key guy. But what he writes in his new book about the Kennedy assassination will change history. Landis, who rode on the bumper of the Secret Service car that followed JFK's limousine in Dallas, 
with his partner, Clint Hill, finally gives evidence that demolishes the magic bullet story. As a fairy tale, it always has been. Landis' account of that fateful day also casts grave doubt on the lone gunman theory. Okay, well, it's more than graved out. It eliminates, okay, the twin fable that underpins the official Warren report. For nearly 60 years, the New York Times, which is the mainstream media's gold standard, has clung to the increasingly tattered Warren report. But now even the Times has finally begun to question the official story. This should open the reporting floodgates since there were clearly at least two shooters that day. Who were they? Who did they work for? By pursuing the mystery that continues to haunt America, the New York Times and the rest of the press can begin to win back its credibility. Now that the official version of the Kennedy assassination has been debunked, other more tantalizing stories beckon. Okay. Now, let me also add, because we want to be, uh, we want to be objective, we always want to do that. You know, Jeff says that there are problems you know, with Landis's account. And one of them is, why did he shut up for this long? Okay. A couple of elements of his account contradict official statements that he filed previously with authorities after the shooting. Okay. And, and that's, that's also true. He did not mention, for example, the bullet that he found. What he, what he talked about were these fragments that he found, but he never mentioned a bullet. And so that has, of course, raised doubts with some people, like, of course, Jerry Posner and David Kaiser. Okay. Now, if, you, if you, I couldn't believe this, Posner did one of his usual, you know, here's a guy who refuses to debate me. Okay. But from the safeness of his chair in front of his computer, do you know what this guy did in order to defend the official story? He actually said that Vincent Gwynn's NAA analysis proved the single bullet theory, okay? I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, really, even for Posner, that's bad. Everybody and his mother knows who follows his case that the NAA has been completely discredited. And I mean completely, all right? It's been demolished. Yeah, but, you know, you're giving – I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, well, why do I even care what Posner says? He's such a because gutless liar. Because he was liar. on TV today. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, okay. so I, I get your point, but I'm just going, I mean, holy shit. I mean. Okay. But what I'm saying is that this shows you just how hard up these guys are to defend this pile of baloney that essentially forms the backbone of the Warren Commission report. Let's never forget what Redlick said. He was one of the chief architects of the Warren report, Norman Redlick. If you say that the magic bullet theory is wrong, words of the effect, you're essentially saying there's two assassins. And as we talked about before, Spectre said this to Epstein, but Epstein managed to keep it kind of hidden until his new book came out a few months ago. When Spectre said that he told the Warren Commission, we either go to magic bullet theory or you start looking for a second assassin. And they weren't going to look for a second assassin. And so now, with what Landis says, now suddenly, suddenly, the New York Times and Vanity Fair and about 12 other outlets are saying, uh-oh, maybe there is a problem. I mean, the fact that it took them 59 years does not speak well for them. But I think it was on 
what's that show called? Rising. Okay. It's an internet show, live video. And they actually gave Oliver Stone credit for this. And they recommended that you download his four-part series. And so that's good. That's that, That's good. So, Len? Yeah. After 59 years... <laughs> After 59 years, the New York Times cracks open a door. Okay, he says, well, maybe we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, they're saying maybe, so I, I'm, not, I'm not too excited. I'm uh, more interested in what Judge Napolitano said when he talked to Trump. He said, if you saw what I saw, you'd realize, well, we could never, uh, you know, reveal the JFK assassination. And, uh-huh. uh, you know... That, to me, is government, CIA involvement. Of course, they knew who did it. They all did, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, who knows? Maybe they're so worried that if Trump gets back in, he's going <laughs> to pay them back by revealing all the dirty shit they've been doing. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I think Tucker said lately he expects that uh, Trump would be assassinated because uh-huh. he's really uh, becoming a threat to them and every time they uh, charge him with something else his ratings just go higher yeah i mean especially when you listen to some people you know there's interviews on joe rogan and a few other people where they talk about the problems with uh you know like this ray epps and and uh, the january 6th thing and all that it it's like it's one thing where you watched what happened on tv but then you find out there's a backstory to it just like they say, 51 intelligence operatives and officers, you know, high people, signed off on this Russiagate. They all said that this laptop of Hunter Biden's was disinformation, you know, classic Russian playbook, you know, bullshit. And now they find out it's just everything on that laptop was true. I mean, these guys are. Well, getting- wait, I, I think what you're, you're, what you're. Are you really? Were there fifty-one people who said that signed off? Yeah, and tell it. You know, sure about that? Yes, I'm sure about that. And four of four um, retired CIA heads. Uh, I can Google this, or uh, try not to use Google DuckDuckGo. But yeah, yeah, that that's the whole thing, where they're saying I don't even want to get into it. But it's so crooked. If you get into it, you'll you'll really say, "Holy shit! I didn't like Trump, but they really." had it out for him now i'm not sure you know you know i'm not saying that um i'm not sticking you know, i mean those guys were out there they were saying you know hang mike pence and this and you know it's a, you you can't make a case for him but if you find out that they were all agent provocateurs and they were uh, on payrolls inspired and this was an operation to really make trump look bad mm-hmm. if that's the case then you can have second thoughts about the whole thing but um it's like the old days when they were talking about Saddam Hussein, Hussein, or you know, in Libya there, they go, "Geez, you, you kind of want to stick up for human rights or something," but it's kind of the wrong guy to do that for. And it's the same thing, kind of like with Trump. You know, I don't, I don't really feel like putting too much of a defense, but the more I see, the more crooked the whole thing is. I think you meant Hussein in Iraq, right? 
No, I know, but um, Gaddafi in Libya as well. Oh, well, yeah, that was pretty awful too. Right, and that's yeah. what I mean. Like, you might have think, uh, you could make, it's just like maybe Vladimir Putin. You're like, oh, that guy's, uh, he kills people and, and you know, and he, he's a murderer and all that and he's a thug. And, and you go, okay, okay, I'm not, I'm not really saying he's, you know, on my Christmas list or whatever like that, right? But then you start looking to this Ukraine stuff and you look into the uh, Vanguard, and BlackRock and all that and you go, have they planned this? Have they planned the Ukraine to be broken up? The government so severely crippled that when they pull the plug, there will be no government and they'll split it up like Yugoslavia. They'll just be these small little states and then they'll move in there and they're taking over all that farmland and stuff. And, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's a real dark side of humanity if that's true. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, you know, no money for Hawaii, you know, $700, $700 a person they were going to offer. It was a one-time deal. They kind of made a big deal. I mean, it's pathetic. And mm. good Lord, I saw a clip of Biden today where he was giving some kind of press conference, and he didn't know where he was. And they pulled it close, and somebody – that's all the questions there are for today. You could tell that he really doesn't know where he is. And I, mm-hmm. I'm, it's unfortunate to say that, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm no fan of his either because of what he tried to do to Ed Snowden. And, you know, I haven't followed his career too well, much. Well, he, he was actually the point man on that, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but going out of his way to bully every country that they wouldn't let, they wouldn't take Snowden. And, and, yeah, uh, Biden was the point man on the Snowden case. Yeah. And Biden was one of the people who was over there in Ukraine. He was the big Democratic guy and John McCain was the big Republican guy. You know, who trying to start the revolution in Ukraine. Yeah. Right. So, by now, and by the way, this is what I'm going to be talking about at the Cyril Weck conference this fall. Okay. I'm going to be talking about the death of JFK and how that led to the rise of the neocons, the rise of the neocons. I mean, can anybody listening to this show really believe that John F. Kennedy would have bombed Libya with NATO? Does anybody really believe that? Okay. I don't. I, I. I. really don't think so. You know. Since we're on this anniversary of nine eleven, I mean, you can make a case for the fraud that's gone on there, and you know, some of these things are are divisive. Where you 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 don't you believe in your own country, but you know, when you study the JFK assassination and you really get a footing on how the Warren Commission lied. And put Alan Dulles in there, you know, the the fox that raided the hen house, who you know is investigating. Um, it, it's really pathetic. So then, when you you think about well, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and then nine eleven, you you just so. And the latest thing was Hawaii and Biden and that. I mean, it's it's pathetic. Mm-hmm. It's pathetic that they, you know, the fleet is there. They could be sending over who knows how many frigates and barges and stuff, whatever they have to bring over supplies there. Nothing, nothing. Yeah, it's pathetic. But in money, money by, uh, it's unimaginable the amount of money they're spending in Ukraine. It's going to bankrupt America. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree. All right. In fact, I've been, I've been um, talking to some guy online about this. And uh, I told him, I said, look, in my opinion, the idea that somehow Joe Biden represents the best of the Democratic Party. I mean, I, I, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy I don't buy spending 
over $100 billion on a war in Ukraine that you know you can't win, okay? You know, so what's the point of it? And Bobby Kennedy said the point of it, and I think he's correct on this, it's not really about Ukraine. It's about weakening Putin, okay, and trying to weaken Russia. The mainstream media, which we assail all the time, in fact, one guy wants me to call it corporate media, which of course it is, has been horrible on this issue, okay, and this whole Ukraine thing. If they wanted there to be a truce, there would have there would have been a truce. Okay, they. I don't think the powers that be in the United States and England, you know, want there to be a truce. Oh no, they don't. They don't at all. Yes, and these yes. guys are all bought and paid for. And if you yeah. uh, uh, watched um, O'Keefe Media, that uh, that um, I forget his name, but he works for BlackRock as a uh, you know hiring people. Um, you know, he was interviewed by a girl who looked like they maybe were out on dates or something like that. And so he's just spilling the beans, bragging about how they buy people and then they're using this war is good for money. And then as soon as they blow up something, they buy stocks in that or the price <laughs> of wheat. You know, it just goes on and on. And finally, um, you know, uh, the rest of the world has said enough of this shit. I mean, you know, how many other, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya... I mean, you see these pictures of Libya before with Gaddafi and now Libya today. And, yes. you know, thank you, NATO, you know. Yeah. So, but that's a different topic. Um, I think that okay, studying, there's a, there's a, just to finalize, when you ahead. study the JFK assassination, when all these things that you think, no, that just can't be true. It's not that bad. And then you go, holy shit, I'm reading parts of the Warren Commission here. It is that bad. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Okay, let me um, – I have some questions, but I'm only going to do one tonight, okay? Um, all right, and so because I wanted to devote most of the time to the Landis story, which if it's true, and I qualify that, is a really big, big, big story. All right, this is from Gary Severson. Jim, do you know anybody that has fleshed out a scenario – Describing what Nagal meant by his contention that JFK would be killed in late September, a few days after Nagal got himself arrested in El Paso. Well, I think that Nagal, because I think we all understand now that there was more than one plot to kill Kennedy in late 1963. Okay, and so I think Nagal got mixed up with one of the plots. They were going to take place earlier than Dallas. But I think the other motivating factor is that he might have realized that what was really happening and that he would be a part of it, okay, and that he could be arrested for criminal conspiracy, all right, it was a possibility. And he was trying to cross the border, you know, at that time, okay. Uh, he also had a run-in with the FBI. Okay, they they had more or less tried to arrest him in August of that year, and so this might have been another reason that he felt that they were on to him. Okay, and so I believe, and it's not a perfect solution, of course, that 
he he realized the problem he had created for himself and he thought that he could be protected by going to house and get off the streets rather than be on the streets you know when the actual assassination took place here let me let me read this Nigel told the FBI after his arrest in El Paso for the bank robbery that on the evening of July 16, 1962, while driving near Malibu, two men dressed in business suits jumped into his car when he stopped. One of the men, according to Nigel, asked him where he kept his gun. Nigel told him it was in the glove compartment. When the man reached for the glove box, Nigel said he took out his gun from his waist and a struggle for the gun ensued. Nigel said that four shots went off during the struggle, with one shot striking him in the chest. Okay. Nigel told the FBI agent interviewing him that the man drove him to the hospital and left him there. And this, of course, would worry anybody. You know, are they really trying to kill me? So Nigel went to uh, Mexico City, and he said that he was looking at a way to get out of the United States. And he was even thinking of renouncing his citizenship. And he wanted to actually try and get out of the country before he did this fake bank robbery. But somehow the arrangements he had made did not work out correctly. So I think that's at least one of the reasons that what happened in September in El Paso with Nigel happened. So if Gary, if Gary has any other solution... Or any other viewpoint, okay, I'd be, I'd be perfectly glad to listen to it because, in my opinion, Richard Case Nagal is one of the most compelling witnesses, you know, that we have in the JFK assassination. I put him up there myself um, with uh, Sylvia Odio, with Rose Jeremy, okay, Um and uh, Martino, John Martino, All right? Well, the thing you can add about that is that, say he did get out of the country, he there could have been a whole trail of, you know, postal money orders for weapons and this and that that would trace back to him. On the other side of the coin, if he's in jail, there's no way, you know, he had anything to do with it. So they can put all the phony, um, you know, golden apples as... as Jim Garrison called them there. Mm-hmm. So that's the advantage of actually being arrested. And, uh, you know, uh, the circumstances of the case, like the policeman said, he was just sitting waiting for me. It wasn't like it was any right. kind of. And the way they threw the book at him is they were really mad that they had been had, that, you know, mm-hmm. he got out of a tight spot. And uh, they threw the book at him. Um, the other two questions. Uh, these are more recent from September the 9th and September the 12th, David Norris and David Hughes. I'll answer those on the on the next show. OK, it's, and uh, I promise I will. I answer every single question that's given to me. All right. So I'll answer those on uh, the next time. The next time I'm on. Sure. OK, good. All right. Well, okay, well, then, if we're going to wrap it up, then... Oh, well, by the way, I'm yeah. sure, oh, you you announced this already, right? That Landis is going to be at the WEC conference? Yeah, with Ben WEC, he, he mentioned yeah, okay, that, right? Good, so good. Uh, people... yeah, everybody should be aware of that. 
okay, because that's going to be a very, very important. Well, first of all, it's going to be a very good conference. But Landis is kind of like the icing on the cake, okay, where we're going to actually get to see him up close and personal and maybe ask him a few questions. Okay, so that's the conference to be at. That's going to be a really, really excellent conference, all right? All right, yeah, very good. Okay, uh, I guess we'll wrap it up for tonight then. And, okay, uh, Len. Next time we'll have you on for longer and you can talk about, uh, there was a couple of things you wanted to talk about. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about my King article. The King article. Yeah. And also, I think last time you said you wanted to talk about Fletcher Prouty a bit as well, that article that's up there. Yeah, and let me, let me make a couple other things. Mention it before we sign off. Okay. Johnny Cairns, who was a very good researcher from across the pond, is preparing like a six-part article, okay, for the 60th anniversary. All right, which is going to be sort of like a follow-up to you and Jeff's, you know, 50 reasons for 50 years. This is going to be 60 reasons for 60 years, okay? Although we're not going to give it that title. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul Blow, uh, who I think we're going to have on pretty soon, yeah. uh, is the main author of an anthology series that I'm a part of called The Chokeholds. And that looks like a very good book to me. And I'm not just saying that because I'm one of the contributors, but I've had a chance to read the whole 400-page draft. And the other contributors are, of course, Paul, okay, Matt Crumpton, who's a lawyer from Columbus, Ohio, Mark Adamchik, a lawyer from Tampa who you've had on your show, okay, I think more than once. All right. And I'm sure you're familiar with a guy named Andrew Eiler who's an attorney from Canada, I think Hamilton. All right. If you haven't had him on, you should have him on. He did a wonderful critique of what Joe Biden did, okay, to the uh, JFK Act. Did you have him on, Len? No, I haven't yet. Oh, you, you definitely have to have him on. His article's terrific about what Biden did to the JFK Act. Okay, so make a little note of that. Right, right now I'm writing it down. Okay, great. Okay, so that's that's it. All right, then. I guess we'll sign off for tonight, then. Once again, thank you for your time. Okay, good evening. All right. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to Ray McGinnis from Vancouver. Hello, Ray. Hey, how are you doing, Len? Great. The reason I wanted to talk to you today is because I know that you're usually uh, more in tune with some of the Canadian things that I'd like to follow. And one is uh, the trucker convoy. There is, um, like you mentioned, four people being held really uh, indefinitely. And also there's a trial on for people who are organizing the trucker protest. And it caught my attention that almost everything in the news that I had heard about it turned to be completely wrong, upside down. When I logged in to see a peaceful protest from people on YouTube, I saw... Uh, families there. I saw bouncy castles. I saw, you know, people saying, "Come out and meet with us. We want to. We're protesting peacefully, the mandates." And of course, you've been on a few times to describe some of the things. But right now, there is a trial going on in Canada, and I thought people might want to be up to date on what is happening, including myself. Sure. Yeah. Maybe just to comment just a bit about, 
you know, that that disconnect between the mainstream media uh, covering the protests in late January into in through uh, uh, into the third week of February 2022. Uh, the mainstream media had a whole bunch of uh, everything but the kitchen sink allegations uh, building on comments by, you know, the prime minister Trudeau that uh, the people who were protesting were uh were uh, you know a fringe minority you know they were they, they, they were variously called hillbillies insurrectionists a feral mob they were accused of urinating on the war memorial of defacing the dairy terry fox statue of of uh, of setting a, a residential building in downtown ottawa on fire with arson of, of having weapons in their trucks of trying to lead an insurrection of having their children, and I want to say there were like, you know, you know, 2,000, 4,000 children, depending on the day off and more on the weekends with, with families that were protesting. And, uh, and people were saying, oh, the, 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 par- the parents are using, uh, these protesting parents are using their children as human shields. Uh, they were uh, accused of, uh, you know, all being Trump supporters, uh, of also being, um, uh, that the whole protest would not have even happened if it had not been instigated by Russians. I, and the list actually goes on and on and on. There's too many allegations to name. And, and all of those allegations got big front page headlines. And then slowly over the months that followed, uh, you would have these retractions, uh, you know, on Section F on page three. You know, the CBC ombudsman chastised the CBC in October of 2022 for, uh, you know, regarding the Russian allegation, uh, saying that the, the broadcaster needs to remember its, its responsibility to the general public. And then when it reports a story, it has to base their story in facts, which the CBC did not do in this case. And so we have this big disconnect and we have local reporters like Rupa Subramanya. Uh, writing for the National Post and, and others, uh, living five minutes from the protest, living as an Ottawa resident, and going down interviewing over 100, 150 of the protesters, people uh, across the, the rainbow spectrum of, uh, of different uh, sexual orientations, of, uh, of different ethnicities, people of color, white people. Uh, and, 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 you know, and she was a woman of color, came from um, India a number of decades ago, and not once did she encounter a white supremacist or any hostility or any uh, misogynist or, or racist, uh, you know, behaviors. Uh, I'll mention one, one person I spoke with when I was out at the Public Order Emergency Commission in Ottawa, uh, um, a young man who's maybe in his late 20s, early 30s, who's at Afro-Canadian talked about how uh, he runs, he's involved with uh, running a gym in downtown Ottawa and his mother watches, I think the CTV was really uh, frightened for him given the alarmist uh, reporting on the CTV and he said, no mom, you can, you know, why don't you come down with me one day and just see it for yourself and so she she uh, was convinced to come down and they spent some time uh, walking in the in the in the crowds near Parliament Hill, and after it was all over, uh, he said to her, "So what did you think?" And she said, um, "You know, I I, I I'm you know I, I'm so astonished with what the media has been reporting. You know, these people are so friendly. So uh, so there's just this this big disconnect, and it continues. Like we have a problem with the Canadian uh, public because you have 
one silo of people that are certain that the CBC um, and the CTV and Global News, etc., would never lie to them. And then other people like me who would read Rupert Subramania's accounts and Viva Frey and see live streaming video uh, from the convoy itself telling a totally different story of people doing the, the hokey pokey to try and keep warm in the streets and, and playing with giant Lego and, and uh, you know, uh, Sikh truck drivers giving out uh, samosas and so on. So it's, 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 quite a, <laughs> it's quite a story about how do we get our facts straight. Right. Okay. So where are we this week? So where we are this week is uh, well the week the week be, began. I mean this the you know the, with uh, we've got Tamara Tamara Leach and Chris Barber, two of, of the people who emerged uh, you know vo really vol volunteering to organize the convoy who came out from the prairies and uh, and the convoy um, you know so they 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 were they have been charged with mischief and counseling mischief. And uh, so the trial started on the 5th, I think, of September. Uh, and just before that, um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau went to the press uh, to say that no one was forced to get the vaccine, uh, you know, even though people were, <laughs> were told um, that, uh, you know, if you don't get this vaccine, there will be consequences. You'll lose your job. You won't get any employment insurance and so on. Um, uh, Trish Wood, who's a reporter, independent reporter, uh, used to work for the CBC. She's in Toronto, and she mused in response to Trudeau's uh, comments last week. She said, I guess all the people who went to Ottawa to support the convoy misunderstood what was happening. They drove thousands of miles in the freezing cold and gave millions of dollars to protest a mandate our prime minister now says didn't exist. So... So, you know, so there, you know, that's sort of the way the way that the, the week began. And then um, and then I'll just talk about day one. Um, you know, this is the, this is the beginning of the reporting. Uh, now, um, the CBC wrote uh, when the highly anticipated trial of Tamara Litch and Chris Barber finally gets underway this week, there won't likely be much arguing about what happened. The, that winter, the two led thousands of trucks and other vehicles to the Capitol and also raised millions of dollars for the movement. The facts won't be disputed. What will be, however, is whether what they did was criminal. Legal consequences of this trial's outcome will be the stuff of many disputes to come, both on the national stage and in small gathering, gatherings between friends and family. Guilty or not, the judge's decision will almost certainly divide public opinion, which which underscores my comment at the beginning of, of this show with you, which is that you have people um, consuming different uh, information, different news. Uh, people following the mainstream media are, are kind of given this gatekeeping information that any other information from any other source is, of course, disinformation. And so and so people are bunkered into their uh, their trusting, uh, you know, Rosemary Barton. Um, the Canadian press um, did a little bit better. They said the following. They said the protests inspired similar de demonstrations at several international border crossings and precipitated the first invocation of the Federal Emergencies Act since the legislation was created in 1988. 
Uh, they say the trial is expected to last 16 days. Now it's going to last about, you know, maybe 26, 30 days because of all the 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 kind of antics with the crown uh, dumping documents and and disputing almost anything that, that happens in the course of the trial from day to day. Um, I want to add that Chris Barber's also who's a who's owns a trucking company in Saskatchewan in addition to the other charges with Tamara Litch, is also count, uh, accused of counseling others to disobey a court order. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's you know, it, it kind of, that's sort of the way, the way it, it all began. And then, and then what, what's going on in the trial itself, I mean, the, um, the, the trial, uh, it's like, there's, there's, the, 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 the Crown is bringing uh, forward witnesses and videos. And I'll just quote what, what, ta what uh, Trish Wood says regarding day two of the trial. She says, I'm not sure where the Crown is going. Um, meaningful violence connected to the convoy has been debunked and the word is taken on a new meeting. Um, we've got Ottawa Police Service uh, Russell Lu Lucas, who was in charge of the plan to deal with the, the convoy, and Lucas testified that, that the Ottawa Police Service believed only five convoys were on the way to the city, but ended up with 13 convoys. Uh, Russell Lucas testified that plans were changing daily and that the truckers were working and cooperating with the police. And one of the things that was happening was these 13 convoys from, you know, the West and from south, south uh, Western Ontario and from the East Coast were arriving in Ottawa. You have some of the convoys even being told, no, uh, we've got so many, we've already got so many trucks. We want you to go to this other area, some miles outside of Ottawa and just park your trucks there and then come in on little shuttles, you know, as pedestrians. There was another area, you know, in, in the industrial area where a whole bunch of truck drivers willingly parked their trucks. And when it came to the truck drivers parking their trucks in residential areas, this was often at the at the, uh, you know, at the direction of the police, like the police were saying, OK, you can go on Wellington Street, you can go on Kent Street and so on. So, um, you know, you've got. Uh, a situation where, um, you know, there's a great amount of cooperation. Also, uh, Russell Lucas told told the court on day two that uh, roughly two thirds of the protesters left after the first weekend. Uh, and so, um, you know, I mean, there, there, it's also clear that um, that that there was a lot of pressure on the part of um, the Ottawa Police Service from the Prime Minister's office. And 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 the police officer uh, Russell Lucas said that they were given instructions to not to give not one inch to the protesters, and so when it came to even cooperating about getting trucks early, you know, you know, by around the seventh or so of February, getting getting trucks out of residential areas. Uh, uh, police wouldn't be cooperating uh, constructively with the protesters to move those trucks onto Wellington Street or some other place because you'd have higher ups in the Ottawa Police Service uh, frustrating the constructive negotiations happening with the with the uh, police on the ground with the police officers. But none of none of this looks good for the Crown's case because you you've got police officers describing 
constructive negotiations. So, and you also have uh, uh, have lots of video footage being shown by the Crown. I mean, you know, people are all watching 75-minute videos, 55-minute uh, videos, which are showing clearly that all of the emergency lanes were were left clear, and you've got vehicles that are able to proceed, notwithstanding the other blocked lanes. So it. Um, uh, so what, what Trish Wood says is she says, Lucas is a crown witness, and after watching him for most of his, his appearance, it's unclear to me what his purpose is. His evidence, it could be argued, is helping the defense. Well, I mean, it's kind of ironic that right after things are cleared out, they put up big blockades anyway, and they block the whole streets off from there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that, that, uh, that whole... Um, you know the, I mean the the re the record from the Public Order Emergency Commission shows that there were uh, a number of key people in the city of Ottawa in in emergency management positions and uh, assistance to the mayor of Ottawa who had who had reached to deal with the protest leaders uh, over the weekend of the uh, you know 11th, 12th, and 13th, and they were ready to begin to remove 75% of all the remaining protest vehicles out of the city of Ottawa entirely. And when you move a protest vehicle from a parking area, you don't need to get a, a tow truck to take the, via, the truck away because the truck has left the city. And so, uh, you know, all of that's there on the on public record as a testimony under oath from the Public Order Emergency Commission from last fall. And, and, when, and when the, you know, what, what they're seeing on, on day three is all kinds of, of of short videos and other social media, uh, which are uh, where the the crown um, is is trying to talk about there's mischief, but but Trish Wood again says that's not what I saw. No one in the courtroom could walk away without noticing how well Chris Barber comes off. Uh, Barber veers between imploring the protesters to be peaceful to sometimes frustration with the government's intransigence and astonishment over the convoy's successful fundraising campaign and astonishment over the fact that nobody in the government at that point in the protest was indicating in any way that they'd be willing to come and have somebody from the government sit down and talk to the protesters about uh, their problems with the mandates or have the government explained to the protesters why the mandates were reasonable. Uh, so it, it, it again, it, it you know by day three in this uh, in this trial, um, it's just uh, it, it's it's really perplexing what what's going on uh, as far as 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 what is the crown the crown is trying to um, to present information that says it's going to going to show the court how the these people are guilty of of mischief and so on. But every time they show another video, the videos don't support what the uh, yeah, you know the what, seriousness you know. of it. Now, there's two points I'd like to bring up about that. Number one is that um, uh, on some other um, show or wherever, I heard somebody talking about that these they were calling this an occupation, and yeah. somebody piped up and said, "I was in Poland when the Nazis came." You know, and yeah. I'll tell you what an occupation was. That's an occupation. This was a peaceful protest in front of the parliament buildings to try to get their attention since no one would meet with them. 
So uh, calling this an occupation is, is a, a bit of a joke in all seriousness. And the second thing, you talked about the government. The I think the big thing that really struck everyone was the idea that they were getting GoFundMe. They were getting donations from everyday people say, I can't go there, but I support what you're doing. I'll send in $50. And then the idea that they would just turn that off. At first, they were going to keep the money, but I think in America, uh, senators had objected. You can't just take people's money and then and then donate it to charities, charities that you want to. And there was a big uproar. And then it would be, well, we'll freeze bank accounts of people who have done that. And that's where I think a lot of people say, wait a minute, what what right do you have because you don't agree with a protest that you're going to freeze people's bank accounts? And that happened. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, that's what upsets me about the whole thing, where uh, I lost support of Trudeau, you know, up until then. It has been a matter that there's there's also a disconnect between the mainstream media coverage in Canada and the coverage of of the protest around the world. I mean, the uh, like, you know uh, the, the the coverage in the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times of London, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, and other uh, other presses around the world were were saying, you know, this is a bad idea. This is you know why why would you freeze people's bank accounts? Uh, and and even what what happened with you know of course those ba- that freezing of bank accounts ended, and it ended in part because there were people powerful people I gather in, on Wall Street uh, perhaps people connected with banks like Royal Bank and TD Bank TD Bank has many uh, 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 branches across uh, different parts of uh, especially uh, New England and uh, and the East Coast and uh, and also. Uh, California, and uh, and people were saying in Wall Street, "Hey, wait a minute! Uh, I thought that Canada was, uh, you know, a healthy democracy and not some sort of a, a banana republic. Uh, I don't like what they're doing over there in Canada, freezing bank accounts. Uh, are my investments secure?" And they phoned, the, I think, the prime minister's office. I don't know who exactly they talked to. Perhaps the prime minister himself, but I'm not sure. But uh, but anyway, uh, people, I, I don't know if, you know, you can sort of only imagine, like, who are the big players in in uh, in Wall Street, like J.P. Morgan or what? But in, in any event, phone calls were made uh, to say, uh, you've got, we don't like this. You've got 24 hours to turn this around or we're going to go to the press and call you out. And then the prime minister, the day the day after that, talks about how, well, you know, uh, we, we've sent our message about the freezing of bank accounts, and now, you know, things have changed, and he stopped freezing the bank accounts. But it was certainly because of international pressure on that uh, decision, uh, because it, you know, anybody who's thinking, if, I mean, if I was, you know, I don't have tons of money to invest, but if, if there was a foreign country which suddenly was freezing people's bank accounts, that I wouldn't be wanting to invest my money in a certain bank overseas and a certain country that was freezing bank accounts in order to make a little bit better, uh, you know, money on, on the, on the currency somewhere. Well, yeah. Uh, uh, the thing I object to right now is I'm calling it an occupation. You know, all yeah. the prime minister had to do was go down and meet with them. And either he had COVID or he was on holidays in the Bahamas or he was just 
unavailable. It was beneath him to talk to his constituents, constituents, you know, that, that voted him in. And um, and here's the people that uh, are saying, you know, enough with the mandates, you know, or uh, or uh, suggest something better. But it was no. It was like let them eat cake. Yeah, let them eat cake. And I want to say a couple things about what you've just said. The first is that. Uh, the prime minister from the get-go was painting the people who were protesting as deplorable people and white supremacists. I mean, he he didn't know who the people were that were, I mean, white supremacists. Tamara Leach is a part Métis woman. You know, she's, you know, she's not, she's not misogynist. She is a woman. She's not racist. She is Métis. Uh, You know, I, so, so this kind of, uh, you know, I mean, there's another guy, BJ. My Dixon. God, it's the perfect cover. How sneaky. Yeah, you know, you know, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, it'd be kind of like, I know that you, you're, you, you're in a band sometimes with, with, you know, with music. It'd be like me saying that, you know, Len Osanic uh, hates music or something, you know, like it's, 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 you, you try and attack someone on their strengths. Tamara Leach is clearly a woman and a Métis, and she's connected with 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 the people, you know, uh, at you know in in her community around this, and goes to to the to the to the reserve where where she has roots. But never mind, they call her this, uh, and, you know, and and even people reporting this, like Ruba Supermania, who's an Indo-Canadian woman, has has on on Twitter been called a white supremacist. You know, it's just it's just unhinged. And I want to say too that that. Up until the the convoy, it was unheard of. Like you know, every every year in Ottawa, you can come up on average with about ninety nine days of the year where there's a protest somewhere around or on Parliament Hill from some group somehow, and routinely uh, you will have uh, someone from from government, not necessarily the prime minister, but somebody from government will go out and acknowledge the group that's protesting, listen to the citizens a little bit. And you know, and, and carry on. And when when we had a protest, uh, primarily of of indigenous people uh, from January 2020 to mid March of 2020, uh, there were uh, four or five weeks of of rail service. Passenger rail and freight rail was uh, was stopped. You had a highway in Ontario that was stopped. You had ferry ser- service schedule delays and and cancellations because of protests at ferry terminals, pipelines in, in construction that were being stopped. And all through that whole uh, you know, time, 11 or 12 weeks, the prime minister's position throughout the whole protest was, well, we have to have dialogue and we, we, can, we can sort this out. We have to be patient. So he's like 180 degrees in the opposite direction with this different protest just two years later. And even R.B. Bennett, who had a very feisty, fractious relationship with the people in the uh, On to Ottawa trek from Regina in 1935, sat down with eight of those protest leaders to to, to have a conversation. So uh, the prime minister's reaction and this government's reaction to a, a public protest is an outlier in Canadian history. And I want to add one more thing, which is when he testified before the 9-11, before, before, not, before the Public Order Emergency Commission on the 25th of November, he was asked by the, by the 
Public Order Emergency Commission uh, staff, you know, when did you first think of uh, of invoking the Emergencies Act? And he, he answered from the very beginning. And it seems that uh, this 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 uh, depiction in the media of the protesters as unreasonable people that are impossible to deal with uh, went, went, ran completely against uh, the effective uh, documentation, documented uh, text messages and, and a bit of video of Tom Morazzo and Tamara Lich and other people who were leading uh, the protest in their constructive day-to-day uh, -day, uh uh, conversations with the Ottawa Police Service. It runs uh, completely contrary to the effective negotiations between the protesters with the City of Ottawa to plan to remove 75% of the remaining vehicles in Ottawa out of the city by the end of February 16th. And so, uh, on the one hand, You've got this rhetoric about people, how people are impossible. But meanwhile, on the ground, the protest leaders are proving that they can have constructive uh, negotiations with the police every day, and they can have constructive negotiations with the city of Ottawa. Well, what do we have to uh, look forward to? Uh, what is next for the witnesses? And uh, have you heard anything about the trials so far coming up for this uh, Thursday, Friday and next week? Well, I want to add that what what not so much about what's coming up, but just to add in the tone of what's happening, you have the the crown dumping documents, uh, wanting to have uh, you know have questioning things that are going on it, that are really really picky, and and the mantra of Justice Heather Perkins McVeigh throughout these seven days has been to say uh, constantly to the crown prosecutor every day. I'm very unhappy. <laughs> like you know, she's saying things to the to the um, you know to the to the crown. This should have been done well before the trial, uh, and and so it's like the the crown is 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 going through all of these antics, and um, you know I'll, I'll just read one one thing that that that's, you know, the, the the judges know notice that evidence and testimony prevented by, pre presented by the prosecution is contradicting the Crown's characterization of the protests as anything but, pe but peaceful. Um, uh, ju the judge uh, recalled a video montage presented by the prosecution, emphasizing that the only violence captured in the whole footage was of a police officer punching a demonstrator. And then the judge also cited police officer testimony that no violence was directed at police officers by the protesters at any point. And, and, and she responded to the Crown's description of, of the judge's role as a gatekeeper overseeing the, tr the trial. And she said, it's going to be a very tight gate with a lot of locks on the gate, because if I allow the witnesses to testify, you know, the, the, the Crown is trying to get all kinds of witnesses to testify who were local residents. And, and, and the judge is saying, you know, we need to, we need to get this, you know, in, in the right perspective, um, you know. There's even a question I have is like, is it in the public interest for the Crown to pursue this case at all? I mean, given given what they're bringing forward in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, the evidence so far, the evidence isn't really showing, uh, you know, criminal behavior on the part of uh, of people who are constantly advising uh, other other protesters to be peaceful, uh, requiring every uh, every vehicle that arrives to have their occupants 
uh, to sign a code of conduct to be peaceful and nonviolent and observe the law. Uh, that the uh, that the uh, the judge in this in the in the Ontario court on the 7th of February of 2022 uh, had an injunction against the horn honking, and that was uh, and that uh, and and the the protests were were allowed to proceed again according to that Ontario justice on the 16th of February 2022 because the protest leaders and the protesters had abided by. The, the horn honking injunction to satisfy the judge in Ontario. So it's it's um, it's going to be interesting to see exactly. I think that what the, what the crown wants to do is is try and um, I know uh, try and uh, uh, and and suggest you know the, the the crown is trying to try them for their political beliefs and kind of open the open that up. To make it, um, you know, uh, that their that their political views uh, and uh, and questioning the mandates should be put on trial, um, and not real not so much address uh, the cr the criminality of of you know whether they did anything criminal or not. Um, so I think that uh, you know we're we're at a place now, uh, you know, where um, I think I'll just read. Um, you know, like I think it's it's something that uh, that people can ask. Like if like if like Eva Chipiak mentioned, who was a pro convoy protester, said, "If Ottawa residents can sue, uh, the negative offense uh, effects of honking, which were almost completely over by the seventh of February, 2022." She says, "Why can't truckers sue for the negative effects of mandates?" on their livelihoods, being able to have a job, feeding their families, having small businesses sue for negative effects on their lost livelihoods and mental health from life's work destroyed. So um, this is, you know, it, it's it's going to be, this is going to be a, another trial where where unless the, the coverage in the mainstream media is fair and balanced, we're going to continue having uh, Canadians in different silos sifting through information that's completely divorced one from the other. And that creates a society where we can't talk to each other because we don't allow um, <laughs> we don't allow a, a, an airing of, of the information to even be be there. Uh, so uh, it's it's I think that what's I think this is a really important trial. But it's also a symptom of of the polarization that's happened in the last few years. Yeah. Wow. Well, the judge, uh, you think is going to be fair then? I think that the judge is 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 yeah. I think the judge is being fair. I mean, the judge is is making uh, you know points uh, to both the defense and the crown uh, if they have something to say that they want to rein them in. Uh, but from what I understand, it's it's mostly the crown um, kind of stalling and and the crown. I mean, this was supposed to be a 16-day trial, and it's going to be, you know, I bet it'll go twice as long, uh, and and that because of the crown's antics, and it can't just go 16, you know, it can't just go 28 or 32 days in a row, because the judge and the crown and and the defense 
no doubt have schedules to be doing other things uh, beyond the 16 days. So uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I don't think it's necessarily going to go sequentially for the length of time that it's uh, happening. I, I don't know what they do with their schedules or if they just um, tell the other uh, other uh, trials uh, that are waiting, that are pending, uh, that are separate from this one, that they're just being bumped further down until this one gets over with. We'll see. Well, I'm, I'm interested. You know, partly I'm Canadian, so I want to know, but I mean, just... I, I've never seen a government slip from being supported uh, so quickly to really being reviled. You know, just, um, I mean, a lot of people really hate Trudeau now, and it's going worldwide. Yeah, I, I mean, Trudeau's just been in India, and uh, and he went there with the, G, the G20 summit in India, hosted by Prime Minister Modi. I watched the, uh, at the end of the... Uh, of the uh, G20 summit, Modi put out a, a video, you know, celebrating, you know, the G20 coming to uh, India. And in it, he's uh, shaking hands with or hugging international leader one after the next, except for two. He, he At no point in his video do you see Emmanuel Macron from France or Justin Trudeau. And and Trudeau was, was asked by the press uh, you know what? Uh, what Canada's contribution to the uh, to the G20 summit was, and Trudeau said, "Gender language." Oh my and, God! Yeah, and and and, and he also uh, waded into uh, kind of scolding the Indian government regarding how they handle protests. Well, the uh, the Indian press went to town, and I listened. To, to one show out of a new show out of New Delhi, where one woman uh, reporter talked about, you know, she has uh, relatives in Vancouver, and the, and they and she talks about how they all agree that Trudeau is an insignificant man, and they went on about how he's from an insignificant insignificant man from an insignificant country, and just went, <laughs> I mean, it just was it was quite something for me to listen as a Canadian, but the thing is that. We have, I mean, they're, uh, you know, they're, what are, what are they, over a, about nearly a billion people? I mean, they're, they're a huge country. And we've relied on, on trying to develop uh, trade relationships, economic relationships with them. And, and he's being, our, our prime minister is being scolded in the Indian press, like taken to the woodshed. And none of this is good for any of the provinces, never mind the Fed, Canada in federally, in terms of, of the kind of trade deals going forward, because apparently trade, a lot of the trade discussions are halted now by Trudeau, by his own choice. And so in steps the British government to take up the slack and other governments as well. And none of that can help with our, uh, with our trade relationships or with our prosperity back at home. Uh, I wanna to mention too that, uh, that one of the, David Creighton in the Epoch Times wrote that the, quote, the trial makes Canada look not just like a third world dictatorship where political opponents of a brutal regime are routinely put on trial and punished for their temerity and courage in opposing policies they disagree with. 
this trial is an international embarrassment for, for Canada and is just another seminal marker on the road to authoritarian government that the Trudeau government has chosen to take over the past eight years. And I'll just mention just today, I was re reading a story by the CBC about, uh, I guess, Peel uh, uh, School Board in Ontario. Uh, the parents were, were shocked to see libraries in the, in the school system where, where many of the shelves are half empty because they've been going through all the books to make sure that there are no wrong books in the libraries. And, uh, you know, when I grew up in the school system in Canada, I could read any book on the bookshelf. I could read A.J.P. Taylor's history where he was a bit uh, soft on, on, uh, on the circumstances of Hitler going to war in World War II, but I could read that book and then other books that disagreed with that historian and make up my own mind. Uh, but apparently um, there are some school boards that are encouraging, uh, uh, you know, people to, to uh, preempt the opportunity for students to weigh different point of views in the marketplace of ideas and just leave the books on the shelves that they think would be better for them to read and those alone. Wow. Banning books. And we know where that leads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I hope they won't start banning, uh, banning, pot, banning podcasts. <laughs> well, we'll go underground. Hmm. Okay, Ray. Thanks for just uh, keeping me in the loop and listeners that, that are wondering. And uh, if you have any links, send them to me that I can add for the show notes. Just, it's interesting that the government tried to, to uh, charge these two people. And, and, and the charges you're saying is mischief? It's mischief. Right. You know, mis I mean, mischief is normally what, what you get charged with when you're, uh, you know, like when you're drunk and disorderly. Or when you're like a bunch of, 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 of teenage boys in a park that have overturned some, some uh, you know, garbage cans, I mean, you know, or, you know, written some graffiti on a school wall, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, and Tamara Lich has already been in, uh, in, in jail for 49 days uh, on, on the slimmest of of reasons, uh, it, it's uh, it's really unheard of in a in a you know a mischief charge. And I want to say too that with all of the uh, uh, alarmist uh, demonization of the protesters, it's interesting that you have these two people who are kind of the, the 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 public face, especially of the Freedom Convoy protest. They're not on charges for assault. They're not on charges for treason. They're not on charges for insurrection or sedition. They're on charges for mischief. So and that's it where we are. Like it's a vague yeah, definition. Yeah. Yeah. Canada 2023. Okay. Well, keep me in touch. And uh, uh, I'm just interested. And I know you usually read a little more about this than I do. So thank you for taking time today. Uh, just before we wrap up, then, is there anything you'd like to add that I didn't get to right now? No, I think I think that that's uh, you know that's uh, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll add that now. I mean, there's of course the the the, the four who were convicted who were who were not convicted who were charged with conspiracy to commit murder in Coots, uh, Alberta, uh, and uh, unarmed four unarmed men who were arrested on the 14, 13th and fourteenth of February 2022, and they are now at about 580 days 
in custody uh, with no bail and no trial date set yet. So that's another another aspect to how the the, the kind of uh, the the punitive uh, uh, behavior of the government towards any who would dare question uh, their legislation. And uh, and now we're we're going back as of yesterday with uh, Dr. Teresa Tam. We're all being encouraged again to wear our masks. Uh, even though the New York Times in uh, in March uh, said that they seem to be not uh, not helpful, and in any event, people are still wondering. Well, when I wear a mask into the restaurant, why is it that the virus chooses not to bother me when I'm having a drink or eating my meal? What? Because you're sitting down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the way. That's the way. That's the way viruses work in in the world we live in now. Okay. Well, um, I guess we'll leave it at that for today. Thank you so much for uh, sharing time with me and taking time to just let people know. I, I'm surprised that I'm getting quite a few emails of people all over the world that are interested in uh, what's going on here in Canada. Maybe they're worried if it takes hold, it's coming to their uh, country next. Um, is there anywhere you recommend people to go to read to keep up to date on the trial and stuff? I think if people go to uh, look up, um, like Google Trish Wood, um, she's uh, she has a Substack, and she's doing uh, articles almost every day on this trial. Very good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good place to start. Uh, otherwise, if people just Google. Um, you know, uh, Tamara Leach trial. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, True North uh, News is in Canada is also covering it pretty well. So uh, you know, as are others. So you know, and of course they'll see they'll see the the CBC and CTV coverage, which sometimes is fair and sometimes a little slanted. So uh, yeah, yeah, you know, what? All- and I'm trying to recommend DuckDuckGo now. I know that they're all the same, yeah. but I just stopped recommending Google. Uh, too many things I look for are being shadow banned on Google. Yeah, you find them on alternates, but DuckDuckGo is probably number two for now, or the go-to one for me. All right, Ray, thank you so much again. Thanks so much. Great to speak with you, Lynn. Okay, very good. Talk to you later. Bye. You're listening to Black Op Radio. My fellow Americans, let's roll. of this nation. You will not escape the justice. You will not escape. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. 
They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people. And neither do we. And neither do we. Third time I've said that. I'll probably say it three more times, see? In my line of work, you got to keep repeating things over and over and over again for the truth to sink in. To sink in. the propaganda.
Eventually, the terrorists may burrow deeper into caves and other entrenched hiding places. I want him, hell, I want, I want justice. And uh, uh, there's an old poster out west, as I recall, that said, Wanted, Dead or Alive. And we hadn't heard from him in a long time. And if we, but if, excuse me for a minute. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor you know, I, I just don't spend that much time on him. I'll be honest with you. Sawed off Al Qaeda. Sawed off Al Qaeda. Saddam, Saddam, Al-Qaeda. The intelligence that we were operating off was uh, was correct. The quality of our intelligence operation, I think we're better than anybody else. We gathered a lot of intelligence. That intelligence was good, sound intelligence. There were not weapons of mass destruction there. Those weapons of mass destruction have got to be somewhere. No, no weapons over there. Saddam Hussein aids and protects terrorists, including members of Al-Qaeda. Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda in the same sentence, separated by seven words. Before September the 11th, many in the world believed that Saddam Hussein could be contained. September the 11th and Saddam Hussein, two sentences later, separated by six words. I don't think we ever said, at least I know I didn't say, that there was a direct connection between September the 11th and, 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 and Saddam Hussein. Who does the president think he's effing kidding? I was very careful never to say that Saddam Hussein ordered the attacks on America.
the classroom waiting to go in, and I saw an airplane hit the tower. The TV was obviously on, and I, I used to fly myself, and I said, there's one terrible pilot. Let's find an insider job. This was the first, uh, the, the first declaration of the, of, of the administration. They couldn't imagine that uh, 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 airplanes could be hijacked. The second option is uh, that uh, they, they knew, the intelligence community knew quite a lot, the FBI and the CIA, uh, but uh, they, unfortunately they were not able to bring it together to a whole picture. The title was Bin Laden Determined to Attack Inside the United States. It must be an inside job. Uh, the CIA had, uh, I think, 14 of these 19 people under control. The FBI had the others under control or knew about them. And the BBC admits that seven and nine are confirmed to still be alive. The BBC is uh, telling the public seven were still alive. And finally, it's not a job. The third option is uh, let it happen. How would these recently seem to be allowed whether you've had advanced knowledge of 9 11? President Bush had prior knowledge of the September 11th attack. They knew that something would, uh, is, is planned and they did it in fear.
that. I wasn't I, expecting I, to see the damage that I saw in the lobby and and the people, the bodies, the pe the burnt people, the injured people. I really wasn't prepared for that. The lobby was about six stories high, and the lobby looked as though a bomb had exploded there. I went around by the freight elevator and I could see it was just blown. It was just a giant shit. 30th floor. We hear another explosion. And at that time we heard a huge explosion. 10 o'clock Eastern time this morning, just collapsing on itself. The second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. We have no idea what caused this. We have no idea what caused this. The building being demolished on purpose. First one and then the other, some say after secondary explosions. Almost looks like one of those planned implosions. We have no idea what caused this. As if a demolition team set off when you see the old demolitions of these old buildings. If you wish to bring uh, anybody who's ever watched a building being demolished on purpose knows that if you're going to do this, you have to get at the at the under infrastructure of a building and bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down. Chief Albert Turry, we received word of the possibility of a secondary device, that is another bomb going off. Uh, he tried to get his men out as quickly as he could, but he said that there was another explosion which took place. The second device, he thinks, he speculates, was probably planted in the building. Federal agencies that were down there do believe that there was some sort of explosive device somewhere else besides the planes hitting. There were two or three similar huge explosions and the building uh, literally shook. You literally shook at the base of this building. You have to get at the, at the under infrastructure of a building and bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down. Big explosion. In the blue. Subway tunnel? Yeah. Tell us what's happening out there. Oh we just gosh. witnessed some kind of secondary uh, follow-up explosion on the World Trade Center number two. The secondary. We understand now there has been a secondary explosion on Tower 2. There was another major explosion. The, build, the building itself, literally the top of it, came down, sending smoke and debris everywhere. We have no idea what caused this. And we were standing here when, when there was some sort of collapse or explosion. You have to get at the, at the under infrastructure of a building and bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down. Do you know if it was an explosion or if it was a building collapse? To me, it sounded like it, to me, it sounded like an explosion. When I tried to say people, in a moment, we heard a big explosion coming down. Everything just went black. Everything came down, glass are popping. 
and people got hurt, stuff went on top of them, and it was a big explosion and everything got dark, real dark like snow. The FBI is here as you can see, they had roped this area off, they were taking photographs and securing this area just prior to that huge explosion that we all heard and felt. You have to get at the, at the under infrastructure of a building and bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it down. Thought there'd been so much death and destruction, maybe the best thing to do was to pull it. In 
demolition. The owner of the visa of the building said we tore it down. And uh, here is Larry Silverstein, the owner who took out $7 billion of insurance on the two towers. Here is his statement from America Rebuilt.
Shempar Phi, Shempar Fidelity, always faithful. Bring it off one more time, more martial law will probably be imposed in the United States. The only way we can stop it is with the classic counter coup d'etat. military ain't going to take it any longer. Seventy percent of us are uh, with us. Richard Pearl's days are numbered. I don't know if he realizes it. Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz, both of them, their days are numbered. Semper Phi. Semper Fidelity, always faithful.